Hello and welcome to the BLB podcast. This is the sixth episode in a series where we talk about the short story form, the writing process and how to get published. The BLB podcast is a new project from Brick Lane Bookshop. I'm Kate Ellis and this is my co-host Peter J. Coles. Hello there. Hi there. Today, uh, we are delighted to welcome writer Leon Craig to the show. Leon Craig is a writer from North London. She studied English at UCL, medieval literature at Oxford, and creative writing at Birkbeck. Her writing has been published by The White Review, The TLS, Another Gaze, and The London Magazine, among others. Leon is a member of the LGBTQ plus writing collective, The Future is Back. Her debut collection, Parallel Hells, is out now with Scepter. Now we have Leon Craig reading from her story, Suckers. Leon, are you ready? I'm very ready. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. The butterflies were beginning to form a paste. They blew across miles of motorway in white and yellow garlands before joining the carpet of dying eyes staring back at us from the windscreen. Every so often, my father would flick the wiper and our view of the road would become clear again, frilled by single wings whipping back and forth in the air. We'd been trapped in our hotel room under thick fever dreams, but today we could finally make our escape. Little pyramids winked and receded in the darkness behind my eyes. The butterflies were not helping. When I tried to look beyond them, all I could see was endless grey underpass and overpass, the road twisting round itself. I'm thirsty. My throat still aches and tickled from the sickness. There's some water rolling around in the back. I stretched out an arm and caught it. Oh, it's warm. I want a cold drink, like a Coke. I don't know when the next surface station is coming my father said, looking at me out of the corner of his eye. On either side of us was nothing but the dark green jungle, roughly hacked back, but 10 feet high at its edge. Every so often there'd be a car or several cars and a police van, drivers and passengers on the sides of the road opening their boots or handing over papers. We were going too fast to tell if they were being searched or just shaken down. Can I have some of that water if you don't want it? he asked. Too late, sorry. I scrunched up the bottle and chucked it into the footwell. I could see the white bones of my father's knuckles pressing up through the tanned skin of his hands. They were bald from wrist to finger as he habitually rubbed his crossed thumbs over one another's backs. We had gone to Mexico in order for him to have an adventure, but that hadn't gone to plan. I was up to little enough at home. It was usually possible to winkle money out of someone for a couple of months' fun, but of late I'd had less and less luck. I wound down the window, reaching into my bag for my cigarettes. You can't smoke in here. His stubble looked grey in the glaring light. The wind will rip it right out, I said. This is a rental car. There'll be a surcharge. How much is it? I replied. My father could afford almost anything when he wanted to, but was impossibly stingy about trifling sums. I'm not paying for you to smoke. But how much is it? He still blamed me for insisting we eat the fried crickets. They came with a dark, chocolatey sauce and tasted like prawns with the shells left on. I didn't see the point in travelling halfway across the world to eating the same food I could find in the chain restaurant. The sickness had come upon us suddenly. We'd been in the National Museum, surrounded by obsidian knives and clay statues with hungry smiles. I'd looked at the Quetzal headdress given to Cortez, gleaming in the low light, stretching wider than the wingspan of the bird itself and had felt my stomach contract into my lungs. I wound the window down a little further, lifting the lighter to my lips. It stinks up the car. We're nearly there. The road was straight from now until the coast, and we did not turn off for any of the signs to ruin cities. My father had so eagerly circled in his guidebook. We arrived in the blue dusk, led up to the hotel by soft lighted spheres placed in the sand. The bar was closing and there was no food except stale nachos, but they made me a margarita to take to bed. The rooms were all wooden cabanas on stilts, each one flanked with palm trees and ringed with balconies that overlooked both the hotel grounds and the nearby ocean. My father tottered up the ladder and went straight inside to collapse. 
but I stayed out on the balcony drinking and swatting myself. I hadn't realised we'd be right beside the sea. I heard it murmuring and lapping like a great blind mouth. The lime juice was so sharp it made me wince with pleasure. Too tired to read, but wakeful from doing nothing, I watched a little light getting larger and larger until another one appeared alongside it and they became headlights before turning again into a single still beam. A tall man got out from the far side of the car and stood in the full glare as it crept forward. His features were erased by the light. The window wound down just enough for a woman's hand with long and sharply pointed nails to emerge and beckon him over. Then it shot out and encircled his wrist to pull him close to the car again as if to sure he was listening to her instructions. The man went round to open the boot, slowly pulling out a bulky-looking oblong, tightly wrapped in dark cloth, as wide and long as he was himself. He shooed away the porter, who had rushed forward to take the other end. Was he really going to climb the ladder carrying that? My trance broke when the car door began to open and the woman stepped out, her smooth white face shining with reflected light, heart-shaped and fine-boned. She paused and turned to stare right at me, pale eyes locking into mine with an expression of amusement and displeasure. I scurried back into the cabana, feeling it enough to be out of her line of vision, like an ostrich or a frightened child. I shut myself up in the silky fortress of the mosquito netting and let my sleep transform the whirring of the fan into giant winged insects just beyond the curtain. Thank you so much. That was great. Sounds like you enjoy reading it too. I always find that when I'm reading my own work aloud, there are things that I kind of rediscover about it. And you know, on bad days, it's that I should have used a different set of contractions. And on good days, it's a turn of frame that phrase that reminds me of kind of details I've hid I've hidden in there. And I feel like this was this was one of the better days. <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> I think it's a great beginning because it sort of um, gives a sense of the style and the writing and the imagery. But I wondered as a sort of initial question that whether you could um, describe the collection in your own words, because there's so much going on in it. I think the thing that really coheres the stories is questions about kind of control and power and I think that probably feeds into a lot of the violence and a lot of the kind of characters preoccupations in both their kind of emotional and their sexual lives and the stories span from 10th century Iceland where these sort of ragtag band of queer Viking noble men and women are kind of having these absolutely disastrous marriages through to the present day where you meet a variety of characters, some of whom are human and some of whom are less so, who are very kind of immersed in the kind of dyke kink subcultures and whose love lives are also a disaster, but in you know, ways that are informed by present circumstances. That's, that's a great summary. Yeah, I mean, a lot, I think another thread through the stories is that a lot of the characters, they kind of, they enjoy chaos. Yeah, I think it's that sort of mischievous longing for something to happen. And I think, but also because a lot of the narrators are actually very unpleasant people that like you wouldn't necessarily be willing to let them have power over you but also the fact that in some ways they are less inhibited about bad behavior is a driver of a lot of the horror action i mean for instance you know not everyone would necessarily realize that they were holding a kind of the 
preserved hand of a hanged criminal and go, I can use this to like make my like rival's life living hell. You might think of doing it, but you might, you know, a normal person might also be revolted by holding such an item and go like, I should probably put that back where I found it. Yeah, that that character in particular does not have, that was in um, Lick the Dust, right? That's correct, yes. And uh, the character finds a way to bring a severed hand to life and uses it to throttle her academic nemesis right and she kind of (laughs) she has no filter this person on her actions no i mean she's she's sort of so far gone in like immersion into her subject that like living people have sort of stopped being real to her and the only thing she really cares about is kind of getting to continue studying so the nemesis is just an obstacle and an obsession yeah it's sort of quite an unhinged voice to to read that one initially that one was actually going to have a frame tail because it was so nasty that i felt like it perhaps needed a a frame around it but I think that was a kind of Mr. James style pretension too far and I was advised that I should lose the frame tail and, and so you just get her unfiltered. You mentioned one influence there could you it's obviously kind of informed by your, your studies at Oxford and you studied like medieval literature could you talk us through a little bit about where the ideas come from? Yeah I think it's quite disparate i mean the medieval literature that i was studying definitely has a strong presence in the collection for instance a wolf in the temple is very much a kind of rewriting some you could even use the term fan fiction for the saga of burnt Njal, which is this icelandic saga that we studied very extensively we even got made to translate bits of it which was a really kind of fun and informative and that's why the cadences in that are quite different because it's written with the memory of that translating activity um but there are definitely more contemporary influences as well like i really what like well admire is actually too weak a word like worship common Maria machado and i thought she made a lot of kind of contemporary queer writing feel possible so i would say she was very present in that text and then there are sort of edwardian writers like mr james and saki who their focus isn't necessarily queerness but like particularly in the case of saki it's always lurking just below the text it's um i'm kind of glad that you mentioned carmen maria machado um most partly because our first guest on this podcast was also in love with her and i feel like this is becoming a kind of fan fan podcast for machado i read i really like reading the acknowledgements in the back of books um and you said in yours that it took seven years to write um which from my point of view is quite a kind of short amount of time for a short story collection because i haven't finished mine yet but um, could you tell us a bit about the process and um, maybe about the order in which they were written? They, so I started writing the stories as I was coming to the conclusion that my master's wouldn't be followed by a PhD because I just didn't think I had the right things in me for a medieval literature PhD. And my cohort who did, it was very, very clear to them. And I kind of suddenly got all of this creative energy back to start writing and start kind of, and I'd been really blocked for four years while I was like being kind of battered over the head with like really brilliant medieval literature. Just, and something came loose when I realized that I wasn't going to be doing that as my career. So that's where it began. And I was trying to find my adult voice and some of it was written in a more realist style and some of it was more fabulous and had supernatural interventions. And that meant 
that the collection was sort of proceeding along two tracks and eventually I had to pick one because it didn't quite mix. I really like repeating characters and sometimes it didn't make sense to have the same people show up in realist scenarios and then in a different uh a different story for instance be confronted by a dibberg and because you know, if it's all one contiguous universe that raises some quite difficult questions so i like i was like okay i'm going to take the core emotions here which are things like kind of loneliness and rage and confusion and like dial them up to their gothic extreme and the stories started sort of building around each other as it became more and more clear to me what my own interests were but that also required a lot of honing and part of that process was also doing an MFA at Birkbeck and receiving really invaluable academic advice about writing. It's always a relief to see to hear how kind of long and serious the, the process is writing and editing and thinking about where to go and how to hone your voice I think when you begin reading, you imagine that people just sort of like they write and it comes out straight, but that's not the case. Maybe you could, um, could you talk about the editorial process of an individual story? Circus has been a really long time in the making, actually. And I was rereading its earliest incarnation a little while ago, which actually had a different title which was Yucatan and I think it may even still be washing around online seeing how much it had changed and also trying to remember you know whose advice I'd changed it on and one of the bits that's had the most work actually is in the beginning because it was quite clear to me in the from its earliest inception that the narrator is a very obnoxious individual actually kind of flagging that up and having the dialogue with the father where she's just being really intolerable we actually came at the suggestion of my editor Francine Toon who I ha I have, feel really blessed to have a wonderful relationship with because she is also an author of Pine which is this wonderful literary gothic novel and so she's very sensitive to language and very kind of collaborative in her working style and there were always there were points at which she kind of pushed me on the story that really really needed pushing for instance later there is a description of a cenote which is this pool with natural water that's sort of created by loads of asteroids hitting Mexico and once you've seen a picture of it it made uh, the description initially made sense, but it needed to actually be able to stand on its own. And we kept going over and over it until it was something that could hopefully be visualized by someone who'd never seen a picture of one. And having someone who has the patience to do that with you is really valuable, I think. Like one of the kind of key tensions in this story is between the narrator. And one of the guests at the hotel, Alexander, whom she meets, and then I'm, I think it makes sense for me to give a spoiler here because otherwise the story will not make sense in the discussion of it. Um, and Alexander's much older girlfriend, Oriana, who we start to realise is a vampire. And the narrator and Oriana kind of enter into this quite kind of eroticized power struggle with Alexander as a sort of pawn that gets pushed back and forth between them. And I wanted to make it very clear that 
the relationship between the women is what I'm actually interested in, but without showing too much of the monster, i.e. Oriana, because that kind of ruins the anticipation. And kind of getting that balance right, I think the person who helped me the most with that was my MFA tutor, Julia Bell, who was like, come on, like, I know what you're actually interested in, but yeah, where is Oriana in the text? So between the two versions, she um, she shows up a lot more in the second one. Yeah, Julia Bell was my tutor too, and she's um, good at understanding the sort of crux of a story, I think, and kind of pushing you to be honest about what you're actually writing about. Yeah, she's very she's very good at kind of getting you to be succinct, but not actually just cutting loads of the story. It's just like, no, like, now this is where you need to direct your focus, even if it ends up being longer as a result. The BLB podcast is brought to you by Brick Lane Bookshop. As a thank you for listening to us talk about short stories, they're offering all listeners a 10% discount. Just use the code BLBPOD, that's B-L-B-P-O-D, for a 10% discount off any purchase at bricklanebookshop.org. I was interested that you said that you sometimes can't remember previous versions of the story, and that's familiar to me that like sometimes I come across a really old draft and I'm like, oh my god I, I don't remember this character at all do you do you feel like the stories have sort of different lives as they get edited and shift and time passes and you become different with them I think they absolutely do and I think it's actually for the best because sometimes there's a frustrating experience of rereading your own work where it's now in a format where you can no longer meddle with it and then there's a sort of ghost line that used to be there that you've taken out for one reason or another. And the fact that it's still kind of appended to your memory suggests that you can't quite let go of it. And once, I think when you have kind of mentally erased it, that's probably a good sign. It's sometimes sort of tricky when a piece of work goes from being a living thing that you feel that you have a very sort of strong and also changeable connection to, to a thing that's inert. And that process, I think, has to happen a little bit so you're actually far, just far enough away from it to edit it. But then when it's at such a remove that it feels sort of fully alien to you, that's almost quite eerie. Was it quite difficult to um, have the book out in the world and know that that is a solid format now and you can't go back and scribble on everyone else's copies? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like, I'm very, like, I'm really happy with what the publishing imprint did with it and I'm like I feel like it went out into the world at the right time but and <laughs> I feel slightly embarrassed about this but like I there was a point when I did actually write to it when it write to the copy editor when it was a copy editor and being like can I tweak like these couple of things and I was like I promise this is the last time I know you want to kill me probably but like I will leave it alone now it's, it's hard to detach isn't it it really is do, do you think you're um extra sensitive to each part of the process because you work in publishing so you, you know how tight it has to be at the copy editing stage Yes, exactly. Like I was like, oh, I would hate it. If, well, actually, no. I would. I would understand if someone wanted to do it, but it would also make me worried about keeping things on schedule. So there was this sort of additional level of guilt attached to asking to do that. Yeah, I can. I can imagine that. Would you mind talking about because you're an editor at Serpent's Tale? Um, would you mind talking about how your role there influences your own writing or vice versa? Yes, I mean, to some degree, I kind of keep them in separate rooms mentally because I think I need quite a lot of mental 
quiet in order to be able to write at least the first and second drafts. And if I'm thinking about the practical later stages of the life of a book, that kind of clamour becomes overwhelming. But in the sense of working with other people, um, particularly on kind of knowing when you're getting really good feedback and how to respond to it creatively, I think that having been afforded the privilege of editing other people's work and working with writers whose revisions and creations are kind of a real delight has shown me how I would like to work like work with my own editor and I think it's probably also afforded me a sense of urgency about the bits of timing that really cannot be pushed back but I think further to that just having an idea of the the life cycle of a book because often the thing that is invisible uh, is the number of months and even years it can take for an editor receiving a relatively polished first draft that's already been worked on with an agent and a number of other people whether in an academic or a kind of lay writing circle context going from something that's already at a reasonable standard to the finished product that you see on a shelf it goes through many revisions and also through many different pairs of hands for instance the person who checks the grammar and the syntax and then the person who proofreads it they're, they're all different from the acquiring editor um so when you're kind of holding a book in your hand, you're holding quite a lot of people's dreams, not just one person's. That's a nice idea. I Reading that, I, I liked the idea that you you wrote the book kind of in some sort of gothic castle or a grand mansion somewhere with stone walls and a fire burning. Um, but I, I, I doubt that that's the truth. Um, <laughs> could you share your kind of uh, writing experience at all or your kind of tricks to getting it done or sitting down in front of your computer? The actual locations of the writing have been quite varied my grandmother used to live in Italy I did used to go and stay with her because there was minimal to no internet where she lived so it was great to get to talk you know kind of get like quality time talking to her and also just being completely cut off from Twitter so thank you very much grandma Um, but most of it was written in my bedroom around you know around work and for that I think I had to make quite a lot of kind of dates with myself where it's like okay you could go out and do something fun with friends or attend to the million and one bits of life admin but actually this is several hours that you've sort of blocked off to do this and I've also found that I mean this isn't the same for everyone but kind of beginning work in the morning before I've actually had the chance to engage with anything else like email means that that kind of mental quiet that I was talking about earlier is sort of easier to sustain and also just bribing myself to do like, okay, if you write 700 words, they can be the worst thing you've ever seen, but you will at least have them to edit tomorrow and forcing yourself to do that. I think is good practice. Like my friend Hugh Foley, who is a poet describes it as like weightlifting where you start with something really light and you just do it often enough that the kind of muscle builds up. I think that's a good way of explaining it. It's true. You have to get into a sort of practice, don't you? And train yourself. And I I also agree about the writing before the internet or anything else infects your brain with other ideas. I think in the morning is the the sort of clearest place to write for me as well. 
Yeah, which is not to say that people who are night owls are doing it wrong, but that just seems to be the time where I can find the most space. I'd, I'd like to talk about the queerness in your book. There's like, I, I grew up and the whole of my education was under Section 28, which you mentioned in Stay A While. And a lot of your characters, while they're kind of completely fine about their own sexuality, experience external pressures from parents or society. And I wondered, I guess, wh whether you think that the next generation is going to be kind of, will have a different attitude and whether there'll be kind of no shame left in queerness. I mean, I was at school at a period of time for most of my education as a teenager, where Section 28 had technically been lifted, but its after effects were still felt. And I would say that the curriculum felt very unqueer. Those sort of topics weren't discussed. You know, they particularly weren't apparent in like PHSE. I actually remember like vocally complaining about it and them kind of getting shut down. I was like, well, that's not immediately relevant and why are you kind of bringing this in here? Um, and it's like, okay, well, actually, there are some quite serious health concerns, but sure, fine, let us go out into the world and discover the, that for ourselves the hard way, thanks. Um, in terms of the relevance to the characters in the story, I think quite a lot of them are living with various different kind of forms of, of deep shame. And the sources aren't always exactly the same. I mean, it might be sort of familial, societal, you know, or to do with, you know, like early romantic and sexual experiences that they've had. And I know that things have changed quite a lot, even just for my generation. So I'm 29. I came out for the first time when I was 11, which really freaked a lot of people out. Um, reception of that was not especially positive. Uh, most of the people that I know now who are my, my age, roughly, and queer, came out about 10 or, so, 10 or so years later. And I think their experiences have been quite different because they didn't pass through adolescence I, with other people knowing that they were queer, even if they themselves knew that. Um, but, you know, everyone, like, everyone wrestles with the closet in their own particular way and everyone ends up with different degrees of fallout from that depending on their circumstances in terms of gen z i'm really fascinated to find out what kind of what their neuroses are um because i doubt that there will be none i mean you know people still get born into not very accepting circumstances and families but also they have a different relationship to the internet and i think there has been a bit of a social shift particularly in younger demographics but also perhaps you know perhaps i'm being overly optimistic i mean you know conservatism still exists yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, I'd like, I like to be hopeful that, that there's so much more information out there and culture that people can kind of look to should they want to. That, that I hope that it's a lot easier than it used to be. I think having ready access to information and also the kind of the ability to build community, even if you're stuck at home and, the, and those in your kind of immediate physical vicinity aren't sympathetic, I think that's a really key change. I think so too. When I was at school, I struggled to find any kind of... Um, queer female fiction or culture or anything in the library did you find anything when you were younger sounds like you were bolder <laughs> in some respects yes in terms of my literary reading I found like a fair amount that was you know 
bi and about queer men. I mean, I remember reading Alan Hollinghurst quite early, but weirdly came to writers like Sarah Waters quite late. And I'm not sure. I mean, I think kind of getting out of the mode of like, I'm the only little queer in the world and that, like, and such a freak. So like, oh, actually, it's quite important to know what other people who've come before me have also thought and felt. Took a strangely long time. Maybe that is to do with my kind of own emotional evolution. But there was, I think, a dearth of it, or at least a dearth of it in the places that I was looking at first. And I think that has perhaps changed the way that I write. And if I'd had those kind of, in, like, like, lesbian or sapphic influences earlier perhaps I would be writing differently yeah we'll never find out will we we'll never find out but someone else someone else will be doing it so I look forward to reading their work yeah me too when I do a complete jump in the line of questioning now and uh talk to you about uh formatting in um raw pork and opium there's a there's a, a moment in the story where the the text is split into two columns and Peter and I are both sort of like whoa what's going on here and we were kind of wondering if you could um yes I think oh god I probably either made some poor typesetters day or like ruined their week but yes what it's do what that particular structure is doing is first off it's echoing the actual architectural structure of the house because it's the 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 creepy house in Raw Pork and Opium is two houses that have been joined together rather ineptly so they have a kind of double staircase that goes back to back and then the characters become like very inebriated and confused within this house that's playing that's sort of somewhat sentient is playing games with them so I wanted the text to reflect that and also it's a way of making the reader question what is and isn't actually real because although English has a slight left to right bias because of the way that the text is oriented. Um, I couldn't come up with a way made sense in two dimensional space to present the kind of different columns as having kind of uh, equal value. And so one like one set of things is happening in one column and then a different one is happening in the other. And they're actually conflicting because this character cannot be in two places at once, presumably. And, and also it kind of creates the decision for the reader either to read one story all the way through and then the other one or to flick back and forth so that they so that they get kind of overlaid on each other yeah i i think i was kind of going back and forth and and thought that perhaps it was used as the sort of part of the story where it wasn't reality it felt like that was that was where it sort of diverged from anything that could be possible i think that's the point at which the, the the house really has them and the kind of questions that get posed earlier in the text about kind of inhabiting all of the parts of the psyche even the ones that you don't want to look at kind of begins to come to life i think we need, we're kind of coming to the final questions here but um there's a couple left and one is that um about your journey to publication you've been you've had a few stories published in the white review and tl TLS and this Parallel Hells is published by Scepter. Um, could you tell us how it got there? Does it have a sort of journey? Yes, it does have a journey. So back in 2016, I got shortlisted for a short story for the White Review 
prize. And that was when I was still kind of distinguishing between a real, like, realist and fabulous mode. And I wasn't, like, I was really, really happy to have been shortlisted. I wasn't actually quite ready to have a finished collection, but it did give me a boost of confidence that I needed to keep going. And then in 2018, I had a like multiple book review of queer fiction published in the Brixton Review of Books and off the back of that got approached by my now agent Matt Turner at Rogers Coleridge and White to kind of because I think I'd listed at the bottom of the article that I was working on this collection and he kind of asked out what condition it was in and I was like I think you're absolutely fantastic I love your taste but can I also wait because I don't want to scotch my chances with you by sending something that needs a lot more work and he was very calm about that and said yes and it took me another two years to a point where it should be an agent and that was also around the point that I was doing my MFA and then he and I worked on it together for a long summer and then he and then it went out on on submission and it was a very crazy time because it was also around the same time that I was moving from London to Berlin so every single thing that I could think of was happening and it was during the pandemic it sounds pretty hectic <laughs> I mean wonderful things came out of it but there was a point in about November 2020 where I felt like my head was going to fall off <laughs> I'm glad it didn't but maybe that story could make it into the next collection <laughs> <laughs> the idea <laughs> it's the ro- the, ro- the rolling roving head uh, are you working on a new collection what's what's in the pipeline so at the moment i'm working on my first novel the decadence which is a haunted house novel actually some of the characters from raw pork and opium do show up in it again um and i'm in the middle of a rewrite of that and they I'm like I'm definitely finding that it's a different skill set to sustain your own and hopefully readers' interests in a cast of characters over a much longer duration. But it's also quite lovely to have something that does feel like a kind of technical challenge. Yeah, it's a very different process, isn't it? Being consistent in a novel than sort of bouncing around different worlds. Yeah, because I mean, with a short with a short story, if someone is really really awful to spend time with you only have to do it for a few thousand words <laughs> whereas like the novel like you're in it for the long haul and also also setting I think if you're if you have a relatively unified setting kind of t- continuing to make that engaging is an is a new challenge do you think then you're you're more inclined in a novel to write characters that you you like the company of no um I I don't I mean <laughs> I don't think I like the character the company of most of these people but I think having that additional time and space means that I can delve a bit more deeply into how they got like that because I don't necessarily want them to be totally unredeemable even in their awfulness so it's a I hope it's a mechanism for adding more depth sorry say that again I hope it's a mechanism for adding more depth Death. Sorry, first time I heard death. I mean, it is also a horror story, <laughs> yeah. so there will be some of that as yeah. well. <laughs> um, what are you reading now? And is there a book or a writer that you always return to? So I'm about to start reading Rebecca Rukeyser's The Seaplane on Final Approach, which is 
which I'm really excited about. And I think it's about a 19 year old girl who goes to a kind of remote Alaskan fishing village in like <clears throat> in search of sleaze. So she's very different to my narrators. And I think her perspective will be quite frustr- like will be quite refreshing. The things that I always return to, for, well, for the moment, I've just because I'm very focused on reading around the things I need to kind of remember for my novel. I've been rereading Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House to kind of remind myself of how she amps up the tension gradually and was sort of sitting in a bar drinking an apple spritz going, oh, Shirley, Shirley, you've really got me. Um, so that's that's been a great joy. And also because also it has a kind of country house novel gone wrong element to it. I read that recently and it's everything about it is off kilter and kind of it's very hard to center yourself in what genre it is what where she is in the house everything is kind of wonky and strange isn't it yeah because she she does actually sort of hot perspective a couple of times which I'd forgotten about just to underline how out of sorts Eleanor is becoming. Um, also, the bit with the vases sort of move, um, moving around the house has always really stuck with me. Yeah, it's really kind of, it gives you a kind of bodily sense of creepiness, I think. The first time I read it, I actually had to only read it outside of the house. So I was like, I can't read it in the house or that will bring and bring it in. <laughs> You're worried that it would haunt your house. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you there. Were you going to say something else that you go back to? Oh, uh, yes, it was, um, yeah, country house novels, because I'm quite interested in them as a genre, particularly things like Isabel Colgate's The Shooting Party or Brideshead Revisited, which are kind of, I feel like always struggling to contain their kind of queer or racialized characters. And it's like a, it's a genre that's both like very conservative, but also in some ways like quite politically potent because it's sort of brought all these different people together, essentially in one place where they're stuck to have a series of like tensions and sometimes a really horrible argument and accident. So I've been, lo- I've been looking at those again and kind of thinking about how to manage a large number of people in a confined space. It's the perfect formula for awkward tension, isn't it? Yeah, put the characters there, keep them there for the whole time, see what happens. Ugh. And make them meet for luncheon. <laughs> of course, maybe supper. Uh, I think I've got to the bottom of my questions, um, but it's been a total pleasure talking to you, Leon Craig. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking to you too. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really enjoying listening to the back episodes and it's, I really enjoy, I really love listening to other writers talk about craft because it's always very surprising and often very inspiring. It's like, oh, I should try that. I hadn't thought of that before. So you're doing something wonderful, I think. Thank you for listening. I think this, that makes me feel like we're, we're doing a kind of proper podcast now that people come onto the show and have, have heard us before. That's a, that's a, This podcast is brought to you by Bricklane Bookshop. It was produced and edited by Kate Ellis and Peter J. Coles, and music was by Andrew Everett. You can find previous episodes of the podcast at bricklanebookshop.org or search Bricklane Bookshop wherever you find podcasts.